Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Procyon Lotor. Welcome to Escaping Society. My name is Gumby. I'm Teresa. This is Other Scavenging, episode 24, the season two finale. <laughs> and it completes our sentence that was season one, dumpster diving, and we wanted to come back to scavenging. That was the original like thought when uh, I was naming those, because... You know, to see what we've learned over the course of a season, which is about three months the way we do it. Uh, we're back in Durham, North Carolina, place we're still calling home mm-hmm. and glad to be home. We escaped the heat. We got back and today is going to be about 80 degrees. But considering the heat that is normally in North Carolina, we did it. It, it took us three months and several thousand miles on the van. <laughs> yeah, and it was what drove us out of North Carolina in the first place. The, the big oh impetus God. was escaping the Piedmont of North Carolina heat. Not one more summer of that humid, heavy crap. So we went up north and we had the chance and went up to Maine. Um, see, now, now I'm letting myself say it. <laughs> went up to, I'm try, I was trying to stop saying um. <laughs> oh, no, wait. Let's just finish this thought. How were you going to stop saying um? Okay, so (laughs) our bright idea originally for this episode is we were going to celebrate the last episode of the season by playing a smoking game. A Uh, drinking or smoking game. I wanted to play a drinking game, but Teresa is a huge lightweight. So, like, literally, if we played a drinking game, by the end of the episode, her head would be stuck to the ground and she'd be yelling help. And not to mention, it's not even 10 (laughs) a.m. Well, there is that. And, oh, a squirrel. Big squirrel. No, see what happened. This is the second take, and we'd yeah. already gotten into that. The smoking game <laughs> fell apart completely. So this is take two, and we usually don't do a take two. We usually just say, like, screw it. I don't care if it's bad. It's honest. So every but time... this one was so bad, it was like, no, that that's just bad. And every time we said, um, or like, we took a hit. <clears throat> so now... All right. Yeah, so, now we're going to do an episode. Let's go. Back to the podcast. <laughs> Let's see. All right, we got up to Maine, and it was cool up in Maine, so we escaped the heat, but there were a lot of mosquitoes. So I'd say about a quarter of the way through our trip, we started thinking, I think in Wyoming is when we actually said that <laughs> out loud, there's no place like home. Yeah. We started realizing that the Blue Ridge Parkway had everything, great places to park, resources. Elevation to Elevation, get out of the heat. we were out of the heat. The mosquitoes were there, but usually weren't too bad, so... Uh, the more we went, the more we realized, like, North Carolina, when you live out of a van, plus the expenditure, oh, my God, we were blasting through yeah. money. It, we would fill up the tank. Let's. 
at the most, it was at least one time, it was twice in the same day. And out in California, that's an $80 tank. What over here is maybe 40 sometimes yeah. even 30 something Yeah. So it was eating up our funds big time. Just a huge expender of resources. I couldn't say living out of a van was cheaper or less impactful on the environment anymore uh, with any confidence. Right. Yeah, I was about to jump in and say that. It was not only costly in terms of the money out of our pocket, but just the pollution and wear and tear on our home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the one exception of Flagstaff, Arizona, that was the one place that we stopped at and lingered at, and I felt like I could have lingered more. It was just, I had already gotten in my head that we were heading to North Carolina. But yeah, that would be the only other place I visited on this road trip that I would consider moving if I had to move someplace else. And we thought if we decided to go back to Flagstaff, maybe we could just hitchhike. Yeah. Uh, a lot of what we ran into when we went up to Maine, I was expecting to see moose and hoping to see moose. I haven't seen moose in a long time. And they're so huge if you've never seen one. And they're a really, um, what would I say, unique animal to get to see. You're, you're so fortunate when you see a moose. Mm. Up in Maine, apparently, in some places, they would just see moose. It was like herds of cow, it sounded like they were describing. They'd block up the roads. They were dangerous to cars. A lot of people just kind of took that for granted, like, oh, there's a freaking moose, you know. I hope they get out of the road. But we we didn't see any. So we heard coyotes howling. You know, we saw some wildlife, but it did seem kind of quiet, even to us. But we just thought it was a new ecosystem. So one woman tells us that, yeah, all the moose have suddenly vanished. She's glad of it. She thinks it's safer for drivers. But it was kind of alarming to hear that. You know, she she just recognized, like, no, I haven't seen a single moose this year. They, they've all just gone away. Later on Facebook, I talked to somebody else who was in Maine. And it was even more dramatic. She said there used to be so many hundreds of moose around where she lived, and for the last two years, not one. So it sounds like there's something going on with the moose population that I haven't heard addressed on the news. I don't know, you know, who knows? Who knows what gets buried? But that was disturbing. And as soon as we start getting over that, we move towards the Great Lakes. And my mom's from Vermont. She's like, you got to see Lake Champlain. It's the most beautiful lake. You got to see Lake Champlain. Go to Lake Champlain. They've got cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, that they say is so dangerous. What was the, like, five times the, the city of Cincinnati? No, it's something like eight times the size of Cleveland in Lake Erie, but not in Lake Champlain. But there was definitely an imbalance because this is a normally occurring organism. It's just that when it blooms out of control, it becomes toxic. And not just to animals, which is the main thing we were concerned about with Sherlock, even dipping his paw in the water could make him die within minutes. But also to human life and just thinking, I had to look at these reports for the Great Lakes and for various other bodies of water that we were considering being around and try to wade my way through all the data. And they don't make it easy. I mean, they do have moderately... Uh, whatever, cautious alert or high alert or low risk. What does that mean? I mean, you can look at videos online to see what it looks like, but I I guess I was just really saddened that I had to look up if the water was going to kill our dog or not. Yeah. We got the moose. We got the Great Lakes that suddenly we can't even get near. And, and we're hearing this is happening in North Carolina and other places out west. It's not just confined to the Great Lakes. I didn't hear anything about this on the news. Granted, I haven't been listening or watching a lot of news. But, uh, yeah, that's something we just got there and find, found out. And as we're driving on 
I can't remember the number of the highway. I think it had an 8 in it, 18 maybe, but along New York. It goes along the Great Lakes, and kind of we were on it for a long time. What we saw is agriculture, farm fields everywhere. Mm. So you it know, like I'm not shit a shit everywhere. Yeah, it smelled like shit everywhere. The biosolids are spraying to fertilize this stuff. I mean, it is just if there's a ruined land, it's where our food's coming from, mm. our, our mainstream food. It is disgusting. It's power lines, just bare, scorched fields because there's no trees to regulate temperature. And then you get all this nitrogen that, of course, goes downhill. And where are you, what are you going to find downhill? Water. <laughs> and if you're around the Great Lakes, it's the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. So all this fucking blue-green algae is just getting fed, 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 fed nitrogen, and it's blowing up and i know from our hikes in north carolina i think and here i'm going out on a limb so correct me um it's always dangerous when i have not done my homework and you're high and i'm high all right (laughs) so it is i think what that pond was that a woman had her dogs die in north carolina was Mm. eastern north carolina do you know it sounds right it's been a while And if it is in eastern North Carolina, we know how much agriculture is there. That's where most of the agriculture in North Carolina happens. And same scenario, just bare cut earth that smells like shit and trucks going by that smell like shit with animals just, you know, canned in there in their own shit. I mean, if it smells that bad outside the truck, I can only imagine what it's like inside Mm. the truck. So, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff traveling around the country, a lot of kind of... You know, the butterflies are disappearing in Arizona. We went to an arboretum, and they did a talk on that. What else? Can you think of anything else that we noticed that was sort of... I mean, the bronze statues, you mentioned that. So there, there was one in Maine. There's one in, like, Wyoming of a, a mountain lion. The one in Maine has a moose on it. It's like all the animals that are gone <laughs> that we're killing. And then we put up a statue, and people fucking take pictures of that. Yeah. <laughs> if we could have stopped before we ruined a species, then we could maybe go out into the woods and see that animal alive. You'll see this with Native Americans, too. You know, you travel around and you see depictions, statues or whatever of Native Americans. Oh, no, the street names, the street names. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Arapaho. So (laughs) it's such a weird love-hate relationship we have with uh, the original inhabitants, whether human or non-human, just that we sort of, like, think they're cool, but only when they're dead. You know, if we can, like, abstract them. If we can reminisce about something. Yeah. And we even went to that talk about climate change as it relates to indigenous communities, especially on reservations. And they were talking about just the pollution and And lack of water. We're hearing a lot about the elk disappearing, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I don't understand completely because I'm not indigenous to this land and I wasn't put on a reservation and done any of the atrocities that were done to the people of this land, but it seems like the government thought it was going to be a like a good idea to put these people on the reservation, but the people argued that they needed to hunt, so the government gave them these passes, like you can go off the reservation to hunt, but only to a certain distance, and the animals, because of climate change, have now gotten out of that circle that they're supposedly allowed to come out and hunt. It's all, this is all screwed up. I mean, I'm talking about a bullshit government that's dictating people that were supposed to be able to do what they needed to do, but because of climate change, they can't do it now. Yeah, and it's not just the people put on the reservations. The animals also got put on reservations. We just don't usually apply that word to them. Um, I was part of a grassroots campaign, the Buffalo Field Campaign, out in West Yellowstone, Montana, 
think around 2000. But I really learned a lot about it there, that the buffalo have a certain confined space that they are allowed to go on, pretty much a reservation. And that space doesn't happen to look anything like their ancient, ancient route that their people have been doing long before we got here. So what do you think they do? Do they like read the sign and like, oh, sorry, Bill, we got to like turn around here now. (laughs) No, they fucking keep going. And so in the middle of winter, they have the Department of, oh shit, what's it called? Department of maybe wildlife. And that's not the name of it. Hmm. I'll think of it later. But it was their job to manage the wildlife. So they would haze these buffalo. They'd separate the buffalo if they thought the population was too much for the much smaller space they're allowed to occupy now. They kill the buffalo, sometimes separating mothers from calves. I mean, you'd see footage of this. It wasn't just like some hippie trying to scare you or something. And they would chase these buffalo with two-by-fours, with four-wheelers, with snowmobiles, even with helicopters to run them back into the park. And in wow. the yeah, in the middle of winter, you know, that might just sound like, oh, they made him run, poor buffalo. You know, that's kind of what I thought when I heard that. I was like, so what's the problem? You know, they're getting exercise. <laughs> Those winters are rough out there. You're on a lean diet. That's why in the autumn you eat so much shit. Every animal does it. They just eat, 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 eat. They put on the bolt because they know they're going to lose weight over winter. And it's a fine dance with nature. You lose enough weight that if you... I don't know if you plan right. Plan doesn't sound like the right word. But when things start popping up, when food becomes abundant again in the spring, you can put it right back on. If you lose more weight, something happens. Every time you have to run from a predator, you're burning precious energy. So when they have to be hazed sometimes miles back into the park, um, some of them wouldn't make it through the winter. And they'd still, you know, they wouldn't take that into account when they're dividing up the buffalo and Mm -hmm. going to these uh, capture facilities. So, yeah, I forget what got me on that tangent, but... Um, well, we were just seeing all sorts of differences of, like, animals not being around. We did hear the call of elk, the bugle, uh, in the middle of the night, in the early morning. Yeah, that was one of our favorite things yeah. is in Nevada and then in Arizona, hearing the bugling of the, the elk. That and is yet, a magical sound if you've never spent any time out west. And yet there are people out there hunting them. As well as the moose in Maine. I saw it was part of, like, Maine's tourism catalogs and brochures just showing pictures of murdered moose. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, and, yeah, we heard about uh, the black bears are getting more frequent up here at the Blue Ridge Parkway um, in North Carolina. So there's, like, visitor centers that are getting closed, little out overlooks and stuff where the bears are just lingering. They're hanging out, and people are they're scaring people, and they're dangerous. You know, a bear might attack somebody. Especially these bears, because what's driving them there is hunger. Their area is getting so fucked with that they're having to take more and more chances to eat. It's like either certain starvation or dangerous situation. The same thing we'd do. It's like, well, hell, I'll gamble. So they go there. They're around people. And the ethical thing these people do is to relocate the bears. Now, I used to think, well, man, I'm glad they didn't shoot them. And I am glad they didn't shoot them. But to relocate a bear, one, where they put them is already bear territory. They're probably, there's a good chance they're dropping that bear right in the middle. They don't know if it's another bear's territory that's going to compete with that bear. Hmm. If there isn't another bear, they don't know the bear's life enough to really predict accurately the resources. Nobody knows what it takes to live a happy bear life but a bear. Mm -hmm. That's why they're there in the first place. They're where the bears have learned how to be, that connection with the land. They're not separate. It's like us in Durham. 
Yeah. <laughs> you do form a connection with your land, even if you're not living that way. You know, if you, well, most people do. I guess not everybody. But, oh, you derailed me. Oh, bears. Bears. Being relocated and they don't know the land. Yeah. And what right do we have to relocate them? It's <laughs> yeah. their territory. Most of those people, if not every single damn one of them that that is complaining or doing something about these bears drove up there out of their territory Mm -hmm. to go into the bears territory. And because the bears scare them, I haven't heard of one actual bear attack because the bears inconvenience them and frighten them. We need to move those bears. They have no rights to this land. Yeah. It would be something if you saw a sign that's like this overlook or this visitor center is closed due to the fact that bears are coming down off the mountain because they're, area has been destroyed and yet we have trees here so we're going to allow the bears to eat right here and not many people benefit (laughs) and spend as much time on the blue ridge parkway as we do and i would say put up gates like you know if the bears are have a need to be there the least we can do is let them have it close off the the that part of the blue ridge parkway for the people if you need to yeah you know that sounds fair to me and i'm saying that like i said as somebody who would really like damn that sucks for me but what right can I claim? The bears were there first, and they're doing a hell of a lot less da- damage up there to a place that I revere and think is beautiful than I'm going to do, mm-hmm. even by accident or carelessness. But anyway, on to our podcast. That was just <laughs> our, our recap. Oh, is there anything else you want to say about the road trip before I move on? No, I, I just want to say there's no place like home. Yeah, we're glad to be back. Hmm. So, other scavenging. Um, I guess I'll start with Gandhi. Why uh, not? Why not? Gandhi's <laughs> always a good place to start. Yeah. So, when in doubt. many years ago, I got curious about Gandhi. You hear his name all the time, and I realized I didn't know much about the man. I'd just hear, like, quotes about him. And every now and then I'd hear an anecdote, and it's like, wow, that sounds like a really, like, cool guy, the stuff he did. So I read his essays and some of his uh, interviews and stuff. They were put together in a book. And one of the things that surprised me was at least a couple times, maybe more, he identified himself as a scavenger. Like, oh, an old scavenger like me. That was my Indian accent. That was like Irish. No, it was fucking Indian. <laughs> so he would say that, and I'd think, well, that's kind of weird. You never hear people say, like, Gandhi the scavenger. Why would he call himself a scavenger, like, more than once? And I started realizing, for one thing, scavenging means something different in India. It is... The caste system is so strong that if you're one of the untouchables, it's one of the few ways available to you to make a living is to do some kind of scavenging, some sort of upcycling or recycling <laughs> um, to use trash. And it's also something that if you're not part of that caste, you never dream of doing. Like you do not um, mess with a certain kind of work that is considered beneath you. So that's where Gandhi was born into. And stories I've heard, even as a little boy, he didn't like that. He resisted it. He said it was wrong. So he started rejecting that when he got more active, more to, to be more of an activist. And asking other people to reject that. If you want to join me, we need to all be equal. Even our enemies, the British, you know, later on, they are equals too. We treat them as equals. Everything deserves our respect. Um, so yeah, it was interesting that he identified as a scavenger later in life, that he would use things. He saw the value in, like, if things are cast off, why don't I repurpose them? He really tried to reject consumerism. He made his own clothes, and he would make fun of how bad they were, but he said, take more pride in your own homespun than buying anything from the British. So that philosophy is a really powerful philosophy. Take pride in your upcycling, even if it looks like crap. 
Um, take pride in your scavenging. So that's something I learned from Gandhi and really emphasize. I was already scavenging. Um, and that also makes me think of where we find ourselves as scavengers now. I think one of the things that uh, has occurred to me over the years is that this, what would I say, ecological structure, we have not escaped it. We have altered it. We have perverted it. But we are still in the basic laws of the ecosystem. We're going to outstrip our food resources. We've gambled with that and stretched it and stretched it and stretched it, but it's about to happen. There's just too many of us. And like any other animal, any deer population, if it outstrips its food resources, it's going to have to decline. Um, So that aspect of ecology still applies to us. Another is the predator-prey. We talk about the 1%, and if there's ever somebody I would identify as a predator, it's the 1%. They are completely feeding on everybody else, and there needs to be much more prey. The food pyramid is still in effect in our culture. We think we're so different and contrasting nature, but it's another form of it in a way. Um, One thing that throws us off, one of the many things, is there needs to be scavengers in any community, any any ecosystem. If there's waste, there needs to be something that uses it. Scavengers are necessary. Our culture hates scavengers. The predators have gone insane. The predators want everybody to be prey. That's why there gets to be fewer and fewer predators, because they even prey on each other until there's only a few left. One percent, less than one percent, I've heard. And there's so much prey to feed on. We work for them. We vote for them. We we just <clears throat> give all the, the, the energy of our lives to them and the money we make, which is a symbol of that energy of our lives, we give to them. And it's just all going there. So they're super predators. They're, they're, they're predators that have gone crazy with appetite. They're Wetico, the, the furthest extension of Wetico. And we're all feeding it. And in our culture, we look down on the scavengers. Think what scavengers would do to this ecosystem of our culture. It wouldn't fix it, but it would help it a great deal. Take the locks off the dumpsters. Instead, all this food being wasted, wow, there it goes. There's no more hungry there's so much food, so much food out there. And then think of all the resources that have been going to help the hungry that could go other places. Mm. I mean, so that's my, 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 what would I say, my plea for the scavenger is our country, as Daniel Quinn says, we try to frustrate the homeless out of being homeless. We try to not let them be places that there's no reason they can't be there. Nobody else is there. It's some abandoned house, but no, a homeless person gets arrested if they go in there. They can't eat food that's being thrown away. There's locks on the dumpsters. There's cops that will actually, from what I hear, arrest you in some places for doing this. So people get so frustrated, there's nothing else to do. Their lives are so miserable, they got to come back to the workforce. Um, I would say if we, we bring that, that scavenging back into our ecosystem, it would help the earth greatly. I just wanted to add something. I forgot to research it, but when I was visiting my parents a couple weeks ago, my dad mentioned, and my dad was in a position with a uh, like a grocery store chain where he was in charge of reducing loss. So whether that means people who were stealing from the company, uh, internal theft or external theft, or just trying to identify situations where money is leaking out from the company, that was his job. So when he said this, it just freaking blew my mind. I'm, I'm trusting that what he's saying is accurate. What he said was, 
these dumpsters that are behind the grocery stores, the same dumpsters that they put locks on and try to prevent people from getting into, the same dumpsters that we know are full of perfectly edible, delicious food, like we're eating right now um, for our breakfast, (laughs) those dumpsters, they charge by the pound. So if you have scavengers who are reducing the weight that's in the dumpster, would that not be better even looking at it just from the pure economic standpoint? And I know there's people that'll throw their garbage in there. They're going to do that anyway. But think of all the problems you could solve just by getting the locks off of the dumpsters. It's going to actually save the company money. Yeah. Yeah, and if we really, you know... I'm eating a hard-boiled egg. Yeah, not the best. Yeah, it was a bad, it was a poor choice. <laughs> so, if we really cared about the Earth, it isn't that <laughs> egg is flying everywhere. Oh my God, it's disgusting. And isn't that why we vote and pay taxes? Is underneath all those actions, they only make sense if we have faith that the people that we are paying to do these things to look out for us, to lead us when we vote for them, to use the money that they take with our taxes to make the world that we all share a better place. Aren't we saying with these actions that we have faith in these people? And, uh... Oh, crap. <laughs> what are you Come saying? on. What do you... I was talking about the dumpsters costing money because of the weight. And you jumped in there and you were saying about the leaders. Yeah. Okay, I'll come back around to that. All right. I'm going to think about that a little bit. And you also covered urban ecology, so good, good on you. Yeah. What about the next thing that you were going to talk about? I would say one of the reasons why we emphasize scavenging so much is because once you start seeing the problem, you know, if escaping society even sounds vaguely like a good idea to you, you've got a reason for it. You've seen something in society that you would want to escape. If we were Apache or Navajo or Kalahari, I don't think we'd like hear the term escaping the Apache and like find that at all interesting be like, what the fuck are you talking about? We'd probably get mad, you know, because we take so much pride in how good it is to be an Apache. But um, in this society, we see things that we want to get away from. And I think scavenging is like the first step to just like opening that up. Like it gives you immediate freedom. True, you're still reliant on society. So there's a bit of a hypocrisy still there. But I found that wilderness survival skills, the ones that would get you completely away from society, not only are they difficult to learn because you grew up a certain way without them, but they're difficult even if when you're good at them to apply to this ecosystem. We have destroyed so much. We're not living in the same world as the people that perfected these skills. So for me, I find scavenging to be really valuable as just an immediate way to start getting some of my time back, my freedom back. As long as society stands... I don't have to do, the food is no longer under lock and key for me. I don't have to do what they tell me to live. I know how to take care of my basic needs by scavenging. So that's one of the reasons why we have two episodes on upcycling this season, dumpster diving in, and now other scavenging. Is Scavenging, I think, is the next step for escaping society. What was the first step? The first step is seeing it. Hmm. The first step you've probably already done if you're bothering to listen to this podcast. Uh... There's a lot more to see for all of us. I'm not saying I've seen it all either, but the more I see, 
the more motivated I am to take the next step. Okay, here's the problem. I'm infected with it too. How the hell do we get out of it? And I found scavenging to just be so far um, a really helpful skill. Damn egg. Yeah, that's gross. Um, not what you said, just what, <laughs> who you are right that's now. That's nasty. Um, here's a cup if you want to use that. Okay, well, we are talking about other scavenging, and we covered a lot in the Dumpster Diving and podcast. So the first on the list to talk about, in addition to the scavenging that we already mentioned, I don't think we mentioned this specifically, is construction sites. And this is a this is a very sometimes elaborate dance. Sometimes it's just really easy. But when we were building our tiny house and would run occasionally out of some supply, especially nails, we would just kind of on our route look for a place that was under construction. And if there wasn't anybody around, just go along and pick up the nails that were left behind. If there was somebody around, just usually ask them, is it okay if I collect some nails? And uh, the one time, (laughs) I'll let Gumby tell this story. The one time we went to a really big construction site and (laughs) we were not dressed looking like we were supposed to be there. Gumby, you want to? Yeah, and I remember the second half of my other story too. Oh boy. So, jumping right back in there. As I was saying, if we have faith in the government and these leaders to take care of us with our taxes and our votes, then part of, like, when they're not making it so hard for people to throw away their trash, they're looking for dumpsters, and we've been in that situation where we have a bag full of trash and we got to find a dumpster and illegally dump it. Why would there not be any funds to try to, like, help people throw away the trash? Because what do you think people do when they can't find a place to throw away their trash? You see stuff just scattered, you know, on the like in paths and on roads. So, yeah, that was that was my completed thought. Ah, that was a good one. Yeah, it it, it cooked for a while. <laughs> okay, yeah, the construction sites. One of the things I used the most was finding nails. So Teresa and I one time went on this construction site. It was just uh, these apartments being built, and it was full of construction workers. And we just wandered around with a bag and picked up nails, knowing that you know we didn't have hard hats or anything. Somebody was eventually going to say something. I don't think we even had shoes or... We yeah, I think we were in flip-flops or something. <laughs> so eventually the foreman comes and says, uh, you know, are you looking for something? Like, what are you doing here? Like, you don't have a hard hat. I said, oh, we were looking for uh, Chris, the plumber. Like, I was, I was coming by and we were going to have lunch with him. And uh, he said, there's no Chris here. There's no Chris, the plumber. <laughs> I was like crap i you know we might have the wrong job site and i think that just bought us like a little minute to get out of there as he you know (laughs) thought like wow are they that stupid (laughs) yes we are yes i'd rather be thought of as stupid than uh like knowing i was there and i wasn't supposed to be but anyway these are nails we weren't stealing them they were the discarded nails i don't know many companies that bother picking up a lot of these nails the stuff that fell out of nail guns and everything so yeah and you can sift through the sawdust piles and usually find a lot of these nails and they're they're brand new they just are discarded because i guess the air gun that they put them in just they can't handle like two or three nails so we pick them up I call that assertive scavenging, where you have to, like, have a plan and kind of go in their covert (laughs) style. Uh, Construction sites are really good for, like, if they've got a big dumpster outside, finding wood, finding all kinds of construction stuff. You do border on this. I think this is one of the more dangerous places to scavenge because some people consider that theft. 
And sometimes they do go back and use that stuff, and they're definitely going to consider that theft if you get caught. Um, it can arouse the suspicion of neighbors, but that can actually work for you because those neighbors have seen construction workers, you know, that are pretty uh, rough-looking guys usually. You know, they're not dressed up or anything. So you go into scavenge, you might just look like another construction worker. It can either work for you or against you, get ignored or get noticed, depending on how you do it and when you go, I suppose. Um we definitely took some long boards, or I did, when I was building the porch of the small house that probably were bordering more on theft. I think they were, like, set aside for a purpose. They looked like it. So, like, construction sites, I would only try to scavenge, like, things like nails or whatever. Um, I just don't think theft is worth the risk. You know, you can scavenge so much out there. It was more, uh, but you can get accused of it quicker on a construction site. Hmm. And that's all I really had about that. Moving on. Yeah, fishing spots. Fishing spots are really fun to scavenge. I like it because you often like can get in the woods, on, I mean the, the water on a pretty day, a pond or a stream or a lake. And, of course, the primary thing that you scavenge there is fishing gear. I found so much expensive fishing gear. Um, I've been meaning to get around to fish more. I actually don't use it much. I, <laughs> I have to like get rid of it now and then and just keep my best pieces. But fishing gear is there, and there's often like campgrounds or picnic areas that have other stuff that they're good to scavenge. Um, the trash cans can have really interesting things in them. I found a lot of really good cordage in trash cans there. And when we've done survival trips, I've even found like food that was, um, that we used, like there was half a, a box of carrot cake mix and we used soda cans to make little like muffins, carrot cake muffins with water we got out of the Creek. So that was pretty cool. Um, I guess that's all I have to say about fishing. Just fishing gear and then of course you can use that to get fish anything else about campsites since you brought that up uh, i'm gonna get to that in a minute i'll do campsites after you do recycling okay well recycling centers you might think what would i need anything from a recycling center that's just that's just recyclables but if you listen to our upcycle podcast you'll recognize that there are plenty of things and aside from just I guess the raw materials for making something, there's actually really useful stuff that people, for lack of any better use for it, they just throw it in there. So we found... I found cans and cans of beer and soda in recycling that I don't know why the hell somebody just threw these <laughs> in the recycling bin, but it's usually cleaner than a dumpster. Mm, that's true. And with the kids for our one camp, we needed to have journals and we weren't going to go out and buy them and I guess we could have asked the school to purchase them for us or had the kids make them. But then all of a sudden we just found about, I don't know, 18 or 20 of those composition notebooks that were less than a quarter used. There were maybe about 10 pages in each of them used for some uh, AP environmental science class. And then I guess the teacher decided, oh, well, I don't care about these anymore. So just threw them in the recycling. Yeah, and the kids loved that they were scavenged. Like they were a little, some of... Uh... The kids' homework that was still in the notebook, and uh, the kids in our camp were having fun, like, looking at the handwriting and trying to evaluate the handwriting <laughs> and tell what kind of person it was. And some of those kids were very interesting, like, <laughs> looking at their homework and the things they would draw. But, yeah, is that all you want to say about recycling centers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, there's been so much I've found in recycling centers. Uh, buddy burners, like, whenever I have a camp project, basically, recycling centers are one of the places I will immediately check because I'll find, like tuna cans, I can make buddy burners, I'll find cardboard, I'll find like, um, 
so many of the unexpected things, like Teresa was mentioning, the notebooks, two tennis rackets. We were playing tennis yesterday oh, with yeah. our with two tennis rackets that I found in the recycling bins with uh, tennis balls that we pick up around the tennis courts. I have about as much fun looking for the tennis balls as I do actually playing tennis. It's like an <laughs> Easter egg hunt. So, um, yeah, really useful place. I wouldn't like those recycling centers. I don't mean just the bins. They're worth checking too, like the little trash cans and stuff. But those places where you find like the tractor trailer size uh, recycling centers lined up in rows, you know, that's just cans and glass and cans, bottles and cans, bottles and cans, and then the little dumpsters with, with cardboard. Mm-hmm. Campsites. All right, so we were, I was touching on this with the fishing spots. Campsites, anytime there's campsites around and campgrounds, if I just feel like, you know, taking a little walk, a little mosey, it's always interesting to look at all the old campgrounds. Um, there's 550 cord that gets left all the time, which is like the best cordage. It's the stuff like all the survivalists use that you can pull out the white strands um, in the equally tough from the equally tough sheath. So you've got like six pieces of really good cordage. Mm-hmm. Um, we found clotheslines. We found all kinds of. You can find um, cooking equipment. I've got a frying pan. I think we found like one of those little handle grip things at a campsite, maybe. I yeah, found, I can't remember if that was at an abandoned house or a campsite, but you find all the time the tent stakes. Tent stakes, yeah, we use those Bungie a lot. Bungee cords. Bungee cords, beer, at least twice have I found oh, beer yeah. just sitting there at a campsite. Um, what else? I mean, there's just a an assortment of things that people leave for one reason or another. And Sherlock's scrounge is like hell. We go oh, to yeah. campsites and he always finds something somebody left there to eat. Um... But yeah, campsites are really fun. If you're out in the woods, like check out the campsites. You can find a lot of stuff, especially if you're looking at it from a survivalist perspective. Like if we're talking about society's collapsed, you know, you're out of your house, you're on the move. Like if there's campgrounds nearby, check them out. And here's another tidbit that we kind of touched on talking about people not being able to throw their trash away for one reason or another. Like it costs money or it's too far away. And I've seen this over and over again. In places that really can't handle the extra garbage, but I can at least understand why people are doing it. So far away places on the Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, campsites that are out in the middle of nowhere, if they've got a garbage can or a dumpster, people are driving there and throwing their household garbage away. And sometimes that household garbage includes something that's useful, whether it's cans of beer or laundry detergent or what have you. It's, It's amazing. Or even candles. I found candles in a trash can that was near campsites, and they're just like, I don't know, people were just cleaning out their house and didn't have anywhere else to put it, so they just put them in the garbage there. Yeah. And I guess, did you have anything else to say about campsites? No, I think that's it for campsites. So abandoned houses. Oh, man. There was one time in particular walking along the mountains to the sea trail here in North Carolina, and this was down east, right? This was... Talking about the cards? Well, yes. The cards that we found in this abandoned house, uh, like a deck of playing cards, brand new. And then a container of Clorox wipes that was damn near brand new. I mean, it might as well. Maybe it had one or two taken out. And they were just sitting in this house, and the kids in the camps this summer were asking, well, how do you know it's an abandoned house? Gumby? <laughs> I mean, the, the thing I noticed first about... A building that is looking pretty uh, abandoned is the amount of fol. What's the word? Foliage, <laughs> not foliage. 
Um, just growing in the yard, growing on the house, growing from the house, like out the chimney. But this house wasn't in particular unkempt. It didn't, I don't think it had a mailbox. That's another indication. And then just looking around, I mean, the back door was open. There wasn't anything in there. It was, uh, it wasn't clean, but it wasn't super nasty either. What would you say about abandoned houses? How to identify them? I'd say it's really important to know it's an abandoned house because if you're going to be breaking into a house, you damn sure want to know you're doing it. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'd just say if there, if I have any doubt, I'm going to make sure, you know, if I am suspecting, like, I think that house is abandoned. I guess I'd just kind of walk up and, you know, try to, like, go up to the door and notice, like, are the curtains? Can I kind of peek in without looking like I'm a, a peeping Tom and knock on the door and think of something to say? I don't know, like... You know, does Sally live here? <laughs> just some some way to tell if there's somebody in there. But yeah, I just you know broken out windows, old houses, foliage, as you said. Another house that we found while hiking was more than covered in vines and just trees were all around it. But it had some really nice rugs that we used for a while, and the blanket that was a crocheted American flag. I mean, it was kind of obnoxious looking, but it was beautiful. I mean, somebody had to have made that by hand. What else did we get from abandoned houses? Oh my God. The, I mean, any abandoned house is worth checking out, but the one that like the place that jumps out the most is there's this one road that just sort of got closed and everybody had to move. Um, so it was full of abandoned houses. They, they've torn them down now, but they were just sitting there boarded up. And by the way, you'll often see no trespassing signs on abandoned houses. There's, you can kind of tell something somebody's coming back for. Like these houses on the road, like anything we didn't take was bulldozed. We knew nobody was coming back for it, and now it's confirmed. Nobody was coming back for it. They destroyed these things. Um, There's just a certain feel of neglect. You know, a lot of this stuff has been there for years. It's starting to disintegrate. It's getting water damage. You're looking for the stuff that isn't. Mm -hmm. So we found so much crap. We found really spooky pictures in this one, work. we found these guys, this guy's journals and, uh, oh my God. yeah, His like clothing, which you're wearing right now. Yeah. If you look at any of our YouTube videos, I've got some pretty loud looking shirts. Like they got flowers on the shoulders and one's red, one's blue. Uh, but <laughs> they were all from abandoned houses. Mostly this one it was like, I had bright pink pants at one time. I mean, just crazy clothes, but they were fun to wear. And there was a house at the end of that street that had books and books and books and Gumby's mom and I picked through them and we filled up, I don't know, about four reusable grocery bags, like the big ones full of books and whatever I didn't want to keep and she didn't want to keep. We repopulated the uh, little libraries around Durham as much as we could. And they were good books. They weren't just trashy romance novel things at all. It was the classics. It was um, all just all sorts of really interesting anthropological books. Reading one now about the Cheyenne. Yeah, and there was, uh, <laughs> we were building this, I was turning this chicken coop into a tiny house in our backyard where we were living, and uh, right when I was looking for an oil lamp, actually somebody bought us one that morning because he, <laughs> he you know, we were telling him we were free, we were trying to be freegan and not spend money and scavenge everything. He was trying to be a nice guy, he just didn't get the, the freegan thing, so he bought us an oil lamp, and that same day, we found in one of these abandoned houses, we were going to scavenge some wood because I was building this, these porches on this tiny house, um, a brand new, still in the box, oil lamp, and then a brand new big jug of oil for it. 
<laughs> so scavenging is just weird sometimes, but we found some cool stuff. And there's this other place that this woman was sort of a shut-in, and she had all these craft boxes, just oh, boxes yeah. and boxes and boxes of different <laughs> crafts. And just brand new stuff. I don't know what the deal was, but it's been sitting there for years. It's it's really a nasty trailer at this point. That's still one of our go-to places. If we're like looking for a certain kind of material or, or something, it's like, wow, I wonder if it's there. Because it's just an, an amazing resource. That was a sad story because I think a lot of people died in that story. Yeah, I think there was a series of family deaths um, that just kind of, I guess, overwhelmed that family. So... But um, there were there were boxes. I mean, these really nice, well kept storage bins of not only craft supplies but kitchen utensils, brand new, like still in the package. Bedding, um, God, there were clothes that still had the tags on them. And you do bring up a good point about like the stories. That's another thing that yeah. I guess I'm kind of focusing so much on the resource, like what a bounty it is that I'm, I was forgetting that part. But there's often kind of a melancholy in these places, you know, like these are people that had to move for whatever reason quickly. Yeah. And they left behind like all these things like those shirts. One of the things I like about them is not just that they're so loud and flamboyant, but they have a story. Nobody would have (laughs) that shirt without a story. That was for a purpose. It was for like, oh, yeah, I don't know, something like it was significant. I know. Well, he was the guy happened to leave his journals and he was by day something really kind of nerdy some sort of engineer-type guy. Mm-hmm. And then at night, he was a blues musician. And he was really tortured by how he wanted to be a better blues musician, but he would have these gigs with people. Keep in mind, you're talking about somebody's journal. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying not to identify um, too much, but I'm just saying these shirts were kind of a dream of his to be a bigger star, like somebody that maybe... Uh, could go out on his own instead of working with people that he didn't really jive with, uh, with his musical ability. But yeah, those, those finds were pretty special. And we do try to honor the stuff. You know, I always feel like as I'm taking stuff from an abandoned house, really excited that I found it, but also recognizing it's not like, I don't know, this personality list thing that things feel like when you buy them from a store, when they're, you know, the only life they've seen is from a factory, and then they go into a box, and then bam, it's like sort of a, a blank thing. That's not what scavenging feels like from abandoned houses. None of those things feel like blank slates. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel the significance of the story there. Whether I get to know any of that story or not, it feels different. And keep in mind, too, you don't have to, if you find stuff wherever, I mean, in an abandoned house or a dumpster or whatever, you can pass it along, too. I mean, if it's something that has been saved from one destiny, you can pass it along and it can continue its story. I do get really sentimental about things. I mean, things really are, I didn't know this in so many words, but things have always had a life to me. So it hurts to even throw out a glass bottle. I'm like, oh, I remember when I got that glass bottle. Yeah, we had a (laughs) pair of pants that actually was one of the things scavenged from one of these houses. And as we're traveling across the country, I hang up my pants after I dry them inside the van and let them get wind. But I wasn't ready for that wind in the... The Plains. I think it was was Indiana. Maybe Indiana. That wind just came and tore my pants out and like... It was a busy road, and I was just like, all right, There was a cop behind us. There was a cop behind us that almost got hit with our pants. Your uh, pants. And talk about to protect and serve. He didn't bring me my pants back. I mean, really. So, I don't know. How rude. But 
Yeah, we felt that way about those pants. Like, they had a personality. It was like, I almost felt like I was betraying them because I kind of, like, knew that the rest of their life would be, like, discarded trash and probably yeah. somebody would not find them that would, like, want to use them as pants again. So, yeah, there was that, a little bit of melancholy about those pants. Yeah, I I thought maybe he could write a song, like, I Lost My Pants in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Maybe that could still be on the back burner for you, Gumby. I'll but that's. That's a good segue into the next place where we have been able to scavenge, and that's just walking. Often, My favorite. Yes. Often along roadsides, and I could just imagine us walking in that very place where Gumby's pants got sucked out the window and just picking them up and being like, how the hell does this happen? <laughs> How does somebody's pants just end up on the side of the road? We do find stuff like that and ask that a lot. Yeah, and... We used to have, I mean, a handful of lighters, like two handfuls of lighters that we just found on the side of the road. And I guess the person decided that it was too frustrating to use it at that point and threw it out. But they still worked for us for a long time. Yeah, have not been finding lighters lately. I don't know what that says about if we're walking different places or if... We're not walking enough. Yeah, but this is by far my favorite scavenging because you get the benefits of the walk, even if you don't find anything. Um... You know, you spend all day walking and you don't find anything great to scavenge. Hell, you just spend all day walking, you know? (laughs) As long as you keep your eyes open, I bet you saw some pretty crap and you definitely got some good exercise. So it's just a a win-win all over. And all these other things I'm talking about are part of walking. You might find an abandoned house you didn't expect to find. We we do it often. Uh, You might find yourself in places with campsites or a bank where people fish or... Recycling um, center. Yeah, they're building something, a little construction site, you know, where there's stuff on the edges. Obviously, they're not using. Mm Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so walking. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, no, I was going to say the the story about the ring. Oh, yeah. Now, remember, tell the whole thing. I'm going to try. The main... But don't get... Don't go too far away now. The main thing is, if you're a scavenger, you'll start to train your eyes to look down a lot. And that doesn't mean that you're shy or antisocial. It just means you're actively looking for stuff. You might be a shy, antisocial scavenger. Well, yeah, you might be that. But on this particular walk, we were hiking, again, the Mountains to the Sea Trail, because that's a lot alongside the damn roadside, and not a good roadside, but it happened to be good that day. So we were walking, and I think it, it started out we found some change, like 10 cents, right? Yeah, that's a good bet. And then a little bit further down, we were walking across this bridge. And <laughs> I looked down into the grate of this no. bridge. The knife. Oh, You're mixing shoot. up stories. Oh. <laughs> All right, I'm hijacking a story. No, but wait, let me, let me finish that thought. So we found a dollar, and Gumby used these two long sticks to be like big chopsticks to get this dollar bill out from the, I guess it was the sewer drain of the bridge. Um, so we found like a dollar and ten cents. But also we found... Well, this was a different trip. So another time we were backpacking, same trail, but at a different location. We started walking one morning and I looked down and I think Teresa spotted it, but it was a big knife, like a big sheath knife. So I was like, wow, cool, and I stick that in my backpack. (laughs) We go further down the road, and, you know, we were doing hitchhiking there, so it was like a hiking, hitchhiking trip when they had us walk on roads, the Mountains of Sea Trail. So, you know, we catch some rides and everything, and a little bit later, oh, what was it? I think we found, like, a pair of heavy gloves. 
Mm, and I was like, right. yeah, I don't. I think we picked them up because they were in good shape. They kind of looked like O.J. Simpson. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit gloves. Yeah. So now <laughs> keep this in order. We're finding a knife, <laughs> then a thing of heavy gloves, and then I think we found a roll of duct tape. Yeah. Some and, sort of tape because I remember something broken. We were glad we had it. And then is that when we found what you were talking about? Well, yeah, but I also think on that same trip somewhere, I got it convoluted, but we had found smaller things, smaller things that were adding up to bigger and bigger things. So after we find all these incriminating pieces alongside the road, the knife, the gloves, the duct tape, I look down and I find a ring. And I'm just thinking, okay, this is just one of those fashion rings that cost eight bucks at a department store. Gumby looks at it and he's like, no, I think you just found a diamond ring. And I'm fighting him on it. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I'll tell you what, like, if, you know, if it is, we can just go half if I turn it in or whatever, whatever money we get for it. But I'm still thinking, like, I don't, I don't believe this is a diamond ring. How am I going to find a diamond ring on the side of the road? Lo and behold, we get back to Durham and take it to a few pawn shops, and they're offering us $120 for this ring that we found on the side of the road. And I thought, you know... I might be able to get a little bit more. So I end up making $150 from this ring that was on the side of the road. You're right. That was the same trip because now I remember when you found that ring, that was the same morning that I had used those sticks as chopsticks to get that dollar. And I'm it thinking, was right man, after that. I worked my ass off to, to get, get this dollar, dollar right in the middle of this road on this bridge, <laughs> like trying not to get hit by cars going by and not get arrested by the cops staring at me. And you just find this damn diamond ring. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I do remember. I also find $5 bills laying in grass and in puddles. I'm not sure what the significance is of why it's $5 that people are losing now. I guess that's inflation. But it used to be like we usually just find change. And if you find a dollar bill, you're you're like a big roll, high roller there. But I find $5 bills. Yeah, when I was hitchhiking in California, I wasn't getting any rides, so it gave me plenty of time to walk on these roads, and I picked up all the change that I saw, and by that evening, I could go to a restaurant with just that change, and I got like a burger and fries. I got a small meal for dinner, and uh, it's also funny, all this, I love scavenge change. It's so freaking beat up that I just love giving somebody like handfuls and handfuls of pennies, and like some of the pennies are so like beat up that like they just have to have faith that it's a penny. <laughs> I take pride in my dilapidated change. Um, the germaphobe in me wants to wash my hands right now. Oh yeah, when the the coins are sticking together, like uh, sometimes when they're on bathroom floors, like there's an internal debate, you know. <laughs> but uh, I admit I usually err on the side of picking it up, yeah. and then I wash it. Yeah. With soap. So I guess the last thing I want to say about walking, um, you know, I've talked it up, but another thing is like think about the places people don't walk. If you can walk. And it's illegal to walk on an interstate. But anytime you get a chance to walk on a busy road, if it's one of those that aren't illegal or if you just want to take a little risk, you know, you can kind of get on it and get off it, you will find so much cool stuff. And I've learned this from hitchhiking because I'd be on a lot of overpasses and stuff. Things are flying off of people's cars or out of their cars or somebody's just pulling over and they're in an emergency. Maybe they have a flat tire, you know, whatever reason. Things fall out there all the time and they don't get seen a lot. Nobody walks there. Nobody's seeing it. The mowers that go through, there's a lot of ground to cover there. So usually it's a big mower and the guy's kind of, you know, falling into a daze as he's just going down on his <laughs> mower. Um, but yeah, man, anytime you get a chance to walk a busy road, 
that is a really interesting scavenging. That's one of my, my the scavenging I have the most fun with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we found all sorts of useful things just in the nick Tarps. Of, in the nick of time, yeah. Blankets. And there's been so many things that we've passed up just because we weren't ready, we were driving. But walking is the perfect speed because you can assess it, you can, you know, pick it up and do whatever you need to do. Roadkill. Okay. Yeah. All right. So is there anything else that you want to talk about other scavenging? Any things that would kind of like round us out and complete our scavenging for this season as we know it? I mean, I had thoughts yesterday, but I didn't write them down. So I guess not. But I am really thankful for what is provided for what happens to just come our way. Mm-hmm. And I really encourage you, and I'm the first one to say that I'm saying this somewhat hypocritically. I'll be the first one to tell you the ways we break this. But the more you can not be a consumer, scavenging is one of the most empowering things. If you're listening to this, you've seen a problem with society. That's why escaping society was even worth listening to once um, or anything with a title like that. So you've already seen part of the problem. You can immediately start to free yourself, and I don't know an easier way than scavenging. And if that means going to a thrift store, yard sale um, hunting. I used to do that with my mom when I was a kid. Mm. These are all steps towards that. So maybe you're not ready to dumpster dive, but any of those steps that keeps you from buying something brand new from a store begins to give you a little bit more freedom. Um, Just starting to think like that, to upcycle, to make things that are really simple. So I guess that would be my last, like, I feel like that's my most important thought I have right now on scavenging as a whole. Mm Mm-hmm. Indeed. So, yeah, so for next season, um, I just wanted to give some previews of some things we want to talk about. Um, we mentioned the Unabomber. We want to do an episode on him, and any of this is subject to change, depending on, like, sometimes things turn into two-parters or whatever. <laughs> um, I did the podcast Back to Reality, where I mentioned attitude, shelter, water, fire, food. So next season, I want to do a whole podcast on shelter, one whole one on water, one on fire, and one on food. Um, to really expand on that. I've gotten a lot of practice, both through some successes and a lot of failures with working with all these four priorities of survival. So um, that'll be a fun podcast to do. We are... What's a podcast you're excited about coming up? Well, I'm excited about the U.S. President's Exposed podcast. Yeah, that's our most ambitious (laughs) That's the most daunting We're already doing our homework for that one. We want to go through all the presidents and tell the story of America through the presidents and the part they had in all the atrocities. Mm -hmm. I get so tired of people talking about their favorite president as if there are good guys among the presidency. The job of being a president is a bad job. It's to do bad things. So we want to tell that story. And, uh, yeah, we're going to try really hard to bring all of our efforts to bear (laughs) on it and do it as much justice as we are capable. So... Yeah, that's for uh, next season. And another thing we're trying to do more is um, respond to, like, read what people sometimes write us and send us and to try to give a response. So this episode, we have Brian from Portland, Oregon, and he writes, I heard your podcast, number one, and wondered where the dialogue happens. So number one, that was uh, introductions. Mm -hmm. Um, We mentioned, like, wanting to maybe... I think we talked about maybe wanting to interview somebody over Hippie Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it depends on partly, Brian, what you mean by dialogue, because, of course, there's two of us, so every episode is dialogue. Um, I assume you mean dialogue with, like, a party outside of the two of us. 
Um, one way we're trying to increase that is this right here by reading people's messages and responding to them. Um, we'd love to encourage more people. If you have a question or a suggestion, um, please send it in and uh, we'll try really hard to answer as many as we can. Um, oh, and another thing, when we started naively, we thought even that we might get to do interviews with people. But what I'm using for this podcast is a little iPad that somebody gave me when I asked on social media if anybody had any technology that would enable me to get online. Teresa and I don't have phones. So even the logistics of the two of us getting our fat heads in here and being outside, you know, we don't have a studio. We don't even have a house. So we've done a couple of these in the van, which I don't really like. But then dealing with the wind, with Sherlock barking, uh, and trying to line all that up with, like, you know, interviewing somebody and chances are if we want to interview them um they're probably a busy person they're doing they're involved in something that interests us so we that has been beyond us so far and that may stay beyond us um maybe we'll reach out with like letters and like get responses back yeah i was hoping to email some people and maybe start a dialogue that way and also i mean we could try to do some sort of technology things there is a way for people to record a message on Anchor about just to us. And if you don't want us to play it, obviously you can say that or use the contact form on our website. But as Gumby mentioned, we do want to have more interaction with you all. So yeah, definitely dialogue there that, you know, if you have a question or comment, suggestion, anything that we'll read it as we can on our episodes. All right. Yeah. And so if you have any questions or comments, um, please check out our website, www.escapingsociety, <laughs> all one word, lowercase, oh dot weebly, um, B as in big booty, big booty, big booty, oh yeah, big booty. You got a big booty. You ever play that? No. You'd be good at it. Um, dot com. And please rate us. Like, if you're listening to these podcasts, um, we would love any reviews, any feedback. So there's a little, like, thing where you can click on a star or whatever. Um, we really try to pay attention to the ratings and try to see, you know, where we can improve, what people are, are interested in. So please give us some kind of feedback or a review or rating. Um, I guess that's it for us. That's it for me. Thank you. All right. See you next season.